Thanks to BetterHelp for supporting Future Hindsight. For 10% off your first month, go to betterhelp.com slash hopeful. Start living a better life today. Thanks also to The Jordan Harbinger Show, a podcast you should definitely check out. We're enjoying the show, and we think you will as well. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show, that's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to Future Hindsight, a podcast that takes big ideas about civic life and democracy and turns them into action items for you and me. I'm Mila Atmos. In this season of Future Hindsight, we've been looking at our current reality through the lens of the social contract. Technology has become a piece of this puzzle because it's with us all the time. We carry our cell phones everywhere, and many of us share some of our most intimate information online. At the same time, these companies sometimes abuse our data. In fact, we're often hearing how social media has contributed to the fraying of our social contract. So, on a macro level, is there a way technology can help us strengthen the social contract? And on a micro level, how can we find balance between the connections that social platforms offer and the privacy that we want? I'm so delighted to be joined today by Dr. Latanya Sweeney, professor of the practice of government and technology at the Harvard Kennedy School. Her mission is to create and use technology to assess and solve societal, political, and governance problems, and, critically for us, to teach others how to do the same. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me. It's wonderful to be on your show. So, just to get us started here, how did you get interested in the issue of data privacy and algorithms? Oh, my gosh. You know, all my life I wanted to be a computer scientist, and I was a graduate student in computer science at MIT. And part of that excitement was a belief back then that computers were the future and could really make a new future, you know, that one that was going to be fair and equitable and full of opportunity for everyone. Um, So one day I'm walking through the computer science lounge and I hear an ethicist say computers are evil. And so I had to stop and figure out, what are you talking about? My beloved computer's evil? Uh, and and I said, I'm, I have to fix her thinking. But literally, the year was 1996, and she literally foretold the future, a time where social contracts were going to be broken by technology. And the big issue at the time was inexpensive uh, hard drives. People could collect data at a level that they never could before. It was cheap and easy to do so. And once collected, people began finding new uses for it, giving it away, and selling it. And what she became concerned about was how this would unravel everyone's expectation around privacy. And she pointed to a particular data set, a health data set, that had been collected on state employees, their families, and retirees. And she said, look, here's an example. They collected this data. Now they've already sold a copy to industry. They've always already given a copy to researchers. I began 
you know, spilling about the benefits of technology from doing this. And I said, plus, there's no names or anything on it. She says, yes, but is it anonymous? And so I look at the data carefully. It doesn't have name or address or social security number, but it did have date of birth, gender, and zip code. And if you just think about that, there are 365 days in a year. Let's say people live 100 years and two genders. That's 73,000 possible unique combinations. But the typical five-digit zip code only had about 25,000 people. That sort of back-of-the-envelope calculation meant that that data would tend to be unique for most people. So I wanted to test it. I go down to City Hall, I pay 20 bucks, and I get the Cambridge voter list, uh, which came on five and a quarter inch floppy disk at the time. My students now have no idea what I'm talking about when I say that. But uh, for those of you who are old enough to recall, and I, I got the Cambridge voter list because William Weld was a governor of Massachusetts at that time, and his information was in that data. And, uh, and only six people had his date of birth, only three of them were men, and he was the only one in his five-digit zip code. That meant that date of birth, gender, and zip code was unique for him in the voter list, was unique for him in the health data, and by combining those two, matching on those three fields, I could re-identify him. So it started out as a simple experiment. Within a month, I'm testifying around the world to government bodies everywhere, and laws around the world began changing because that simple way data was given out back in 1996 wasn't just one data set. That was the best practice around the world. And what that simple experiment showed was how all of our expectations around anonymous sharing of data had been upended by sort of the uh, recent advances in technology. Anyway, I didn't mean to go on and on, but that's how it all started. No, that's uh, that's great. Actually, I think one of the big takeaways from that story is that we don't actually understand how vulnerable we are, how vulnerable our data is. And I think you very neatly with the back of the envelope calculation showed us just how easy it is to identify us as unique people, right? And show us that we are not anonymous. So in your story that you just told, you really weren't thinking about those dangers and you actually started uh, or created HIPAA, right? Is that well, accurate? please don't blame me for HIPAA. <laughs> but, but I gotta, I, I have to say that, you know, I know that it's meant to protect us, right? Uh, but it actually doesn't feel that way. So how, how do you like share with your students and other people to think critically about the p potential consequences of our data, of algorithms, and to understand these privacy measures? Yeah, well, first of all, uh, I should just clarify for HIPAA. So that, that experiment that I just described happened at exactly the moment in time where Congress was debating what became known as the HIPAA privacy rule. And in the earliest uh, publications of HIPAA in the Federal Register, they actually cite me and they make reference to the experiment. What you see in the regulation itself, though, is an overfitting to the example. That is, HIPAA says, oh, this is what we're going to do for date. Dates can only be in the year and only the first few digits of the zip code. Um, and so it overfit to that one example, not understanding that, well, other data fields can combine and make you unique too. Other data sets beyond the voter list exist that can be used to re-identify you. And so as a result, you know, the policy didn't really get us on the right track. Um, and so, so that's one thing. But how do we think about this and how do we teach students 
uh, to think about these unintended consequences or adverse consequences of technology. So that's really been sort of a life's mission from then on, um, has really been trying to figure a way for society to get the benefits of these new technologies without these harms. And privacy was just the first wave. We've gone on to be the first to show how an algorithm can discriminate based on race and, and actually violate things like the Civil Rights Act. We've gone on to show vulnerabilities on election websites and so forth and how they could be used to shave a few points off of an election. And, the, and it just keeps coming and coming and coming. And that's because we're not responding well enough. So what, so what can we do? So I teach students that to do experiments like the weld experiment that I just described. That's not rocket science. And it, it, sometimes it can be just a simple experiment that can shed a light on the, on the real nature of the problem. It puts a scientific fact on the table. It allows journalists, regulators, advocates, and so forth to use that fact to help bring a fourth change. And so through that lens and through that mechanism, my students have gone on to inspire new laws, change reg have regulations changed based on their work, uh, and change business practices, some of the high-tech companies as well. That's great. Well, this is so important that you're making it much more accessible to regular people like you and me. I do have a little bit of a follow-up question about HIPAA, though. Like, if you could redo it today, or if you could redo it right now, what would you change in order to make it more effective? So I, the thing I would change the most is the get out of jail free card. So most, a lot of our policies are written where if you do this to your data, you can give it away freely. And the truth is that might be true on one day, one point in time, but later since we don't know the direction of data and we don't know the direction of technology, we don't know about all the vulnerabilities that might come over time. And so when we write a law that says, well, if you just do this, because in 1996, if you had just done that, that was good enough. But in 2021, that's not good enough. And so we want to change the way we think about laws to set, this is what we're expecting for privacy. We expect people not to be re-identified. Like name the goal that you want and be open to the fact that if somebody found a new way that you can incorporate it. Right now, if you find a new way to break HIPAA, be careful because they'll come after you with lawsuits and so forth and, and make you sign various kinds of contracts so that you won't talk about it. That, that doesn't give us any better privacy. It just keeps us from talking about it. So we really do have to change in the way we think about what a privacy law should be. Yeah, well, it seems like this is really related also to an idea that you've talked about, uh, technocracy and, you know, how basically technology design is making policy for us and is shaping our behavior in ways that is unexpected. So could you explain what technocracy means and how that relates to what you're talking about in regards to privacy protections? Yeah, definitely. You know, so technology designers are really the new policymakers. We don't know them. We don't know their names. We don't elect them. But the arbitrary decisions they make and the technology they design dictates the rules we live by. And so I argue that we live in a new kind of technocracy, one where the design of the technology determines the way our society functions and the way we, we live. 
And certainly there are so many fantastic examples of that in today's life. But even if you go back in time, you can see how arbitrary little decisions. You know, in the 1980s, Sony introduced the Sony camcorder. And they made a mistake, a design mistake, where it didn't have a mute button. And this little, simple, little fraction of a penny change ended up having dramatic impact on American laws. Because without a mute button, whenever I would go to use a camcorder, this device that recorded video and sound at the same time, I could easily break the law in the United States. Because it's okay to photograph people in public, but American jurisprudence at the time said, you need people's permission to record their conversation. And so as a result of that, you know, there was a mother who's a parent who strapped one of those to her child and put her on a school bus in Pennsylvania, and it captured very atrocities from the uh, bus driver to the child. She takes the recording down to the police department, and they arrest her for illegal wiretapping. There was a case where uh, a, a protest was happening, a protester was being arrested by uh, Boston University police, and a bystander began recording with, a, with one of these camcorders the arrest. The police stopped arresting the protester, turned around, and arrested the guy with the video camera, and he faced seven years in prison. So now we fast forward. Pennsylvania has a law. Every school bus is required to have a camera <laughs> that records video and sound. And of course, the ACLU fought those cases like uh, the uh, videotaping of the protester and won us all the right to videotape the police in the service of their public duties. But just think about it. It was arbitrary. A, a, a lack of a mute button is how we ended up changing our laws. Maybe we would have changed our laws anyway, but that's not the way that it should have happened. People shouldn't have had to go to jail and so forth. And once a technology is successful in the marketplace, its design gets replicated without question. And so today, most of us video record using our mobile phones or mobile iPads or devices, and none of them have a mute button either. It's just a continuous replication of that same original design, even though today all they'd have to do is add a software change to, to have a mute button. So, so the design of the technology really matters. You know, I'm, I have a 13-year-old son, and he, he will often tell me about free speech, uh, as children will often do. But his notion of free speech is based on what Twitter says free speech is. And Twitter's notion of free speech is not America's free speech. Uh, but increasingly, like my son, even my students will often view conversations around free speech based on what Twitter's policies allow. That's totally backwards, right? That's totally wrong. And so, and then when we think about uh, how many algorithms, these new decision-making algorithms that embed in them bias from historical data and so forth, and there's a long litany. I have a slide that I often show students has about 30 federal regulations uh, and a couple of constitutional amendments and how we can't really enforce them in many technology uh, uses because of the design of the technology and that the design of the technology actually changes them uh, because we can't enforce it, because we can't see it, because we can't protect the laws that people died for and fought for. Yeah, well, these are really fantastic examples of the law not keeping up with technology and the seriously negative consequences of that and of how you know, we just replicate design without thinking, without reviewing it at all. And your free speech and Twitter example really leads us to an important segue. 
There was an important investigation, actually, that came out in the Wall Street Journal recently based on Facebook's internal files. And it revealed that the platform had serious impacts on polarization and adolescent girls' self-esteem, for example. I know you were also reviewing that material. Did you recognize any other issues in those files? In, in terms of full disclosure, we have a, a project that is actually trying to make those documents uh, available to the public, uh, to researchers, journalists, and then to the public. Um, so so we, we're working hard on that and, and stay tuned on that on that front. But I say the biggest thing that the documents really point to is one is this the sheer sweep and magnitude and power of these platforms like Facebook's platforms uh, and in their ability to influence and be a part of major political campaigns around the world. When the documents become public, you'll see that. You know, there already have been written issues around young girls and uh, and their self-image and the role that Facebook advertising and feeds have played in that. Uh, that we've also already heard about human trafficking issues uh, made worse on Facebook, and, and the list goes on and on. But so one is the sweeping magnitude. The second big takeaway, though, is that Facebook has lots of knobs by which they can make adjustments so that things don't go as viral, or we adjust the speeds of how fast messages uh, go forward and so forth. But to turn them down, their own research shows could have a beneficial impact to offset some of the adversity. But turning it down costs a dollar to the company. Yeah. Well, so I have a question about that, the, the business model. What are the trade-offs here for them and for us, of course? Right. I mean, you know, as Jim Waldo often says, we are the product. We're not the customer. The customer is advertising. And I think what comes through in the documents, but it also, I think even without the documents, is something we all can realize and understand is that their ability to make money runs contrary to our interests. The things that we need to have our society function better, you know, for the most part means, you know, we want a happier, uh, respectful, you know, supportive society. And in order to do that, we're not as likely to be on their platform as often trying to organize protests and trying to uh, have verbal battles and so forth. And so as a result, their interests and our interests are not aligned. Yeah. Well, let's pivot a little bit here. Um, is there a point where the public actually has leverage to create change? Like, how can we harness technology actually for the public interest? Like, how can we turn this around for us? So, so, you know, we have lots of ideas about how to do that. And I don't think there's one silver bullet to make it happen. And there's no, uh, there's no immediate, there's no single thing an individual can do, but together we can act individually to bring about major changes. So what, what are those changes look like? Uh, one of the things that we need to do is we need to have alternatives. We all want the benefits of these technologies, but the decisions that have been made around how they make their money and the decisions that they make and how they operate shouldn't be the only way. It shouldn't be a bundle of one thing. We want to be able to compete in the marketplace, and so we do need competitors that offer us alternatives. Um, and so one of the things we do need to do is to insist on more competition in the market. The second thing that we need to insist on is transparency. 
It shouldn't be me and my students and a few other researchers around the country working our butts off to try to figure out how to show you these things. It should be far more transparent. We need to change our regulations and our abilities for regulators to do their job on these platforms the same way they would have done in a prior uh, generation if they were brick and mortar buildings. And so that lack of transparency because it's online, because you know, a lot of our regulators still don't quite understand the technologies. That's something we, we can't tolerate anymore. We really do need regulators to, to have their own tools. And some of those tools is uh, insisting on transparency. I'll give you a quick example on the transparency point. If, if you wanted to see a political ad when William Weld run for governor that ran on television or radio, there are archives that you can go and see every television ad and every radio ad that, that his campaign ran. There's no place you can go to see all of the ads that the Trump administration or the Biden or, or the Biden administration ran in their elections if they ran them on Facebook. So in response to that, Facebook has put up a, a little political website that you can see some, but you don't have the ability to analyze them the way we can any the other medium. Why? It's the same, it's the same ads, and, and arguably the social media reaches more people. So this is what I mean about changing our rules so that the rules that we had in place before can be enforced now in today's setting against these technologies. So what would you say uh, would be the ideal regulatory scenario? Like if you could (laughs) wave a wand right now. I would like to see Section 230 go away. I would like to see... All right. You have to explain what Section 230 is because a lot of people don't know. (laughs) Yeah. What the heck is a Section 230? That doesn't even sound like it's something useful. All right. So, you know, if you would go back in time, you have to imagine going back in time. And suppose you were setting up a platform, uh, an online platform, and you wanted people to come and try to sell their goods or offer their services or have communication. And what you didn't want to be is responsible for every product they advertised or everything that they said and so forth. And so the idea was that we needed a regulation that would say, if you were a platform and you were just letting people come and do their thing, you wouldn't be liable or responsible for the content on that platform. That makes perfect sense. But now let's fast forward to today. So at first glance, that sounds just like Facebook. I get to put stuff on it, and Facebook doesn't have to be responsible for what I say or what I put on it. But Facebook isn't that neutral platform. They're trying to optimize their income. So they do that by controlling what I get to see. They control my feed. They control what ads are coming. And they control them in a way that's aimed at trying to maximize their income. So as a result, they don't have that neutrality anymore. And it is that feed and those algorithms that are causing us the most angst. And so I I argue that they therefore no longer qualify for that same kind of protection that that we wanted them to have in the earlier years. And so this is a battle called the battle over Section 230 as to whether or not the old stuff should apply or whether there needs to be something new. And I think it's really clear there needs to be something new. We'll continue our conversation with Dr. Sweeney in a moment. But first, I want to tell you about BetterHelp. Do you wonder what interferes with your happiness or prevents you from achieving your goals? 
BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist, all without ever having to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches, so they make it easy and free to change counselors if needed. It's also more affordable than traditional offline counseling, and better yet, financial aid is available. Basically, BetterHelp is convenient, professional, and affordable. No wonder it's the world's largest therapy platform. In fact, so many people have been using BetterHelp that they're recruiting additional counselors in all 50 states. Of course, anything you share is confidential, and you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions. Start living a happier life today. Get 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com hopeful. Join over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health. That's betterhelp.com slash hopeful for 10% off your first month. Thanks, BetterHelp. Let's also talk about The Jordan Harbinger Show, which is a podcast you should really listen to. And I know that every day somebody tells you that you just have to listen to some podcast and you nod and you say, sure, then you never listen to it. Don't let that happen here. The Jordan Harbinger Show covers such a wide range of topics through weekly interviews with heavy-hitting guests that there's truly something for everyone. A recent guest was the psychology professor at Harvard, Steven Pinker, on his latest book, Rationality, What It Is, Why It Seems Scarce, Why It Matters. Jordan is always focused on pulling useful, practical insights out of his brilliant guests. The episodes are loaded with bits of wisdom that you can use to legitimately change your mind and improve your life right away. If that's not worth checking out, I'm not sure what is. You can't go wrong with adding The Jordan Harbinger Show to your rotation. It's incredibly interesting, and there's never a dull show. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show, that's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And now, back to our conversation with Dr. Latanya Sweeney. I want to just back up a little bit to the idea you brought up about platforms, interests, and our interests as individuals not being aligned because, you know, Section 230 showed us the way that it's being applied today or rather not applied today. But can you talk about this distinction between the platform's interests and our interests as users? So one of the things that becomes really clear is that Facebook has lots of knobs by which they can make adjustments so that things don't go as viral or we adjust the speeds of how fast uh, messages uh, go forward and so forth. The question has to do with its economics, the the business model. Um, The issue is primarily not the design or that the platform has to be designed that way in order to deliver the benefits that we as a society enjoy and want to enjoy. The issue is how it goes about making its money. Now, one thing I think all, all, everyone, because we get the service for free, we think it is free. It's not free. This is the cost we pay. And if we had to pay for it, you know, some of us might not love it as much. 
but but I do throw out there just as a counter argument that if you paid for it, you you would then be the customer and you would then have more control and rights. Right now, as I said earlier, we're just the product. And so as the product, it's the advertisers who are paying this bill and the advertisers are really their customers. So that's one model. I gave you two models. The advertising model that we currently have, the customer's pay model is another model. I don't think either of those are the right model. I think there are lots of places in between, and I think that's where we really need to go. Mm. So what would a a middle-way platform look like to you? Because, I mean, I, I know that there have been several platforms where you have to pay But as far as I can tell, nobody is using them because nobody wants to pay for it. (laughs) So what's what's the way? What's the third way? Well, ironically, we already have some great examples of stuff in the middle. Not in the middle middle, but stuff moving towards the middle. So we all bought into uh, this financial arrangement because we wanted Google search for free. We wanted to use Facebook for free and so forth. And, And that's one thing. But then there came this point where I had to buy my iPhone. I had to buy my phone and you still own the data and you still control it. I have to buy my Amazon Echo and you still listen whenever you want. It's still, you're controlling the data, you're controlling my experience. And so we've now kind of begun moving towards where we are actually paying for for it, but we're not demanding or acting like a consumer in those spaces. And so um, and, and so it does pose a, a model that's that may be forthcoming. So that's one model. A third model might be that we change the infrastructure where individuals at least get control of their own data. That is, okay, fine, I go use your service, I use your service for free. You put a copy of my data in a private in my private repository, and then I can have other apps and other uh, com- products service me, some of which I may pay, that uses my copy of my data from different silos. And so that's another model that we've been exploring, for example. But whether or not people will march with their feet or with their clicks is yet to be determined. Yes, this is always the thing. We uh, we can't really predict human behavior so cleanly. You know, <laughs> this is my this is my beef with economics that we assume people are rational and they're not. But uh, <laughs> anyway, so at this point about the financial model is really important, obviously, and we don't talk about it enough. Uh, And I wanted to ask you a question about how that relates to your book that you're writing right now in Technology We Trust. Can you talk about what your thesis is about the book and the relationship you see between the social contract and technology? Yeah, definitely. It goes back to the story that I talked about earlier, the ethicist that foresaw the future who said technology is breaking all of our social contracts. And she was absolutely right about that. And so the book, uh, In Technology We Trust, you know, uh, how to dictate the technologies that determine how we live, is really about the lessons that we've learned with the students over the last uh, two decades. And those lessons have to do with as that there are ways that we could have different outcomes and that those different outcomes service both society and the technology producers. Uh, where do they come from? Well, we, the book unfolds it across the spectrum of the technology society of the technology life cycle. There are these stages that technology development goes through, and at any stage, 
there are remedies as to how you could avoid or address a technology society clash. And the earlier you avoid it, the easier it is. It's kind of like the Sony example. If I do it in design, I just put a mute button in. No one would even have noticed, and a whole set of consequences, adverse consequences, could have been avoided. So the book has lots of stories that come back over time to use where individuals have made certain decisions and choices in technology design, and also what alternatives look like then, uh, but why they chose the route that they chose. So we look at solutions in the vision stage, uh, then on to development, through commercialization, that magic place, which we've talked a lot about today, where the tech design of the technology has to be commercialized. You have to figure a way to make money. You got to come up with a business model, and, and which is not easy to do, frankly. Uh, but once you do that in the commercialization stage, when the product goes into the marketplace, we often can't distinguish the the part of it that's the business model from the part of it that's the design of the technology. And so as a result, by the time it gets in the marketplace and we see a clash, all we have are kind of add-on policies, things, little band-aids of things that we can try to do to sort of soothe it over in that moment. And then if it gets, if it gets towards the legal stage, then we can do these kinds of things that my students have done a lot of, and that's an experiment. We call them experiments of shame, where you, put a, you do a scientific experiment, and it's kind of like shame on you, company, that this is true or that you allowed this to happen. And then we see some action. All right. Well, so there are two things. One is uh, the Sony camcorder, the mute button idea, right? Like, I'm pretty certain that whoever was at Sony, it didn't even occur to that person. And it didn't occur to us either, right? So it's the kind of thing like as a consumer, as regular people, how can we be thinking critically about the products that we buy or use? Because I don't think we think about this. <laughs> and I'm not quite sure we can or how can we? That's the question for you. Right. I think that's exactly. I mean, I think that you're un underscoring two really important points. The first is there, I'm limited as to what I as an individual consumer can do, but you're not limited what you can do with your single action, single voice in collection with others. Um, so, and also we want the benefits of these technologies. It seems incumbent on us and it's so much easier if the technology designer will think about stakeholders and society as a stakeholder it, when they're building these technologies. In the Sony case, I think the problem really happened. I mean, this is a big multinational corporation, the, a big tech company of its time. And, and they had already been selling millions and millions of dollars in products here in the United States. So you would think that they had the legal firms, the know-how to know that that mute button was gonna be a problem. But in Japan, uh, the rules are different. And so in Japan, you can record both sound and video in public. And I think that's where the problem came and nobody caught it. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, so this is a sidestep, but you're talking about different laws here, like it's different in Japan and uh, there are different privacy laws, for example, GDPR in Europe. So this makes me think about that example uh, you have spoken about in the past, that strong data privacy laws are like having a blanket. So can you explain that? <laughs> Yes, I'd be happy to explain it. I sometimes call that why Facebook could be developed in Cambridge, Massachusetts and not in Cambridge, England. So uh, when you look at privacy laws, last time I counted in the United States, we have 2,148 privacy laws. 
And if they, if a privacy law is to drape a person's body, there our 2000 laws are like little bitty dots that stack on top of each other, leaving almost the entire body naked and it's exposed. In Europe and Canada and a few and, and a few other countries, when you look at their privacy laws, they're laws that drape the entire body. So how does this relate to Facebook? Well, so when Facebook starts, the company is collecting personal information on individuals because it allows you to put the information on, they're holding it, and then and you're sharing it with others. And we don't have a law that stops that, right? Because the way to think about privacy laws in the United States is it goes unless there's a law that says it doesn't. So anyone could do this. And so as a college student here at Harvard, that's exactly what he did, right? But if he had been in Cambridge, England, if Mark Zuckerberg had been in Cambridge, England, the collection of personal information requires approval, right? He would have to apply whether or not he could do this. And I think that that step alone would have meant we probably wouldn't have had Facebook. So, so that example, my hypothetical example, really tells us the, how different privacy policies can play and its relationship to innovation. So on the one hand, the, the blanketed policy gives us the opportunity for privacy protections that we don't ha enjoy here in the United States. On the other hand, our lack of privacy policies has allowed our tech companies to really move forward very, very quickly because for the most part, they didn't have anything to slow them down as they went towards the marketplace. And so it gives us both the benefits as well as the consequences. I, I just want to say one more thing, though, about the speed to market. This is a real interesting thing. You know, this, the second industrial revolution was huge. We had cars. I mean, we just got almost everything we enjoy in modern society that isn't digital came from the second industrial revolution. But it took a long time for electricity to get into our homes from the time it was created because wires had to be run. Just lots of decisions had to be negotiated around safety. You know, why I should believe that when I plug something in, it's not going to blow up in my hand. Things like that. All that had to be worked out as, 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 as society adopted more and more electrical appliances. Similarly with cars. The car gets invented. Now there has to be all these new rules about what the car has to do. Does it have to have brakes? Does it have to have a regulator on its gas pedal so that it can have a smooth acceleration so people can monitor speed. All of those things had to be worked out as roads had to be built. But today, technology, you know, all, anyone can build anything, pretty much anything, and put it on the web and you're already in the marketplace. So the, the speed at which we can go to market is, is also a factor. Right, right. Well, so you have uh, spoken about this Earlier, how, you know, really we need to take collective action individually, it's much more difficult. But so what are two things that people can do, uh, whether that's individually or collectively? Like, what are your ideas that an everyday citizen can do? I, I think the first thing that uh, individuals need to do is to, when given a choice of a technology that offers you some protections, you should take that moment and really think about it. So um, it, within the next couple of years, I do think there will be we'll see more platforms that will offer us alternatives. And will people choose, you know, to stick with 
you know, the current Twitter, Facebook, TikTok, or will they choose an alternative version? And th the reason that turns out to be important is because of network effects. A lot of social media has to do with, it's not just me on Facebook, it's me and my friends, and this is where how I communicate or how I share. And so it's almost needing a larger number of friends and, and others to move to the alternative platforms. And the second one is, action. There are these just moments in time where regulator, where regulations get enough political incentive and political opportunity to actually make a change. And when those things happen, that's the moment to support the regulatory change or, 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 or support the new law. And those are the two most important things I would ask people to look out for. Excellent. Well, this prospect of different versions of our current social platforms uh, really leads to my last question, uh, which is what makes you hopeful about the future of technology? Oh, I'm very hopeful about the future of technology because it's the benefits. You know, it, it, we can't really live without technology. Um, in many ways, I'm kind of where I started this conversation. I'm, in many ways, I'm still that graduate student who believes in technology and who knows about the benefits that it can bring our society. And I still want that for our society. And we can have that without these harms. Um, and so that's what keeps me hopeful. Excellent. Thank you so much, Dr. Sweeney. My guest today has been Dr. Latanya Sweeney, Professor of the Practice of Government and Technology at the Harvard Kennedy School and in the Harvard Faculty of Arts and Sciences, Department of Government. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. Next week on Future Hindsight. We'll be talking about the relationship between religious faith and the social contract with the Reverend Dr. Emma Jordan Simpson. She's the president of Auburn Seminary, which emphasizes the building of a multi-faith movement for justice in order to build the America of tomorrow. This is a conversation you're going to want to hear, so make sure you're subscribed to Future Hindsight. This podcast was produced for Future Hindsight by Sarah Birmingham, Reva Goldberg, Zoe Sullivan, and Bart Warshaw of the Cocoon Collective. Zach Travis is our associate producer. Until next time, stay engaged. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.